Okay, so a little, little bit of trivia. Music trivia, a little bit. One question. What was the best-selling single in music in 2014, last year? Think back to what you were listening to on the radio. What was the number one song? Anybody know? Man, you guys are pretty good. Okay, you didn't put it. They said it so fast, I thought you might have put it up. Yeah, it was uh, Pharrell's Happy. Now, here's how powerful this song was when it came to selling uh, digital copies. At this time last year, in August of 2014, so over the eight months of that, that year, it had sold 5.4 million singles. Now, that may not really help us get a context of how big that is, but if you go back to 2013, the year before that, the number one song was a song called Blurred Lines. At the same stage in the year, so in August of 2013, compared to August of 2014, Happy had outsold Blurred Lines by one and a half million copies. So those are the two first place songs in the last two years. And one was a one and a half million more sales than the one the previous year. Now, it's a, it's a catchy song for sure. Um, got a beat, makes you kind of bob your head. But I think it also kind of taps into a, a truth that we want as, as people. We, people want to be happy. You, you want to be happy. I want to be happy. Uh, none of us walked in this morning going, hey, if you have the choice, Red pill happy, blue pill sad. Nobody's taking the, the sadness pill. We're all going to choose happiness. It's, it's, a, it's a part of our culture. In fact, it's been so ingrained in us. You'll recognize uh, this sentence from the Declaration of Independence. You can fill in the blank. Go ahead and hit the next slide, please. Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, Liberty and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, we learned that in sixth grade social studies, that as a country, life, liberty, and chasing after happiness are what we call unalienable rights. I mean, we want to be happy. We feel like and we believe that we deserve to be happy. And so we do all kinds of things in a quest to attain happiness. Some of those things come from, from substances, I mean, you think about the, the guy that tomorrow is going to go to work and, and, and it's a, a typical Monday and, and, and Mondays you know, are, the, are the worst day of the week because you've got four more in front of you. And, and afterwards, he's, he, he's kind of fo- trying to focus through the rest of, of the week. And before he heads home, he stops off at, at a place to, to grab a drink, to sit down, unwind for a second. And he orders some food and he orders a beverage. And we call that happy hour. If you grew up Baptist, you go to Sonic. You know, um, the rest of the world doesn't. It's happy hour. I'm going to go because this substance is going to give me happiness. Or, or we, we seek after happiness by trying to, to purchase things. We get caught into this materialistic uh, mindset. That's what commercials are all about. It, it, if you're watching television and a commercial comes on, the goal of the advertiser is to convince you that if you buy their product, you'll be happier. That your life will go to the next level. That there'll be this, this, this thing inside you that says, I am better today than I was yesterday. Today is a happy day. We see it in, in all of those things. We see it in materialism. We see it um, in, in, for some of us, for some of us, you, you've been here before, you switch jobs, maybe even switched careers in order to try to find 
happiness. Over every day, over and over and over, going to the same place, and you felt beat down, and you thought in your mind, if maybe if I just if I stop working here and I go start working there, I'll find happiness. And sometimes you do. Most of the times it's a temporary thing, and then you go back to the routine. The Washington Post posted a uh, survey in their newspaper this week. The survey was done by a group out of the Netherlands, and they actually studied. How, hap- how what people can do to find happiness. And they compared four different groups of people, people who were religious, people who were uh, serving in their communities or volunteering or doing charitable work, people who were in education that were trying to learn and, and, and grow and, and develop themselves, and people who were involved in politics, whether it be local politics, changing their community, things like that. And they wanted to to study, do any of those things help people find happiness? Here's what the study found out. One of those four things had a significant impact on the way people responded when they were asked if they were happy. And it was people who were involved in a religion of some sort. In fact, the other three categories showed no change at all. But people who were quote unquote religious were happier than other people. Now I'm not a researcher, I wasn't involved in that research study. I couldn't even begin to tell you um, how they did that. But I have a guess. And my guess is that in some of those religious people that they interviewed, I'm sure they came across some people who were following Jesus. And I would submit to you that there are a lot of those people that if they are following Jesus, happiness might have been confused with the emotion that we're talking about today as we talk about inside out, happiness can get confused with joy. Because happiness and joy look very similar, but they're not the same. And here's, here's the difference. Happiness, happiness is circumstantial. If you walk up to me afterwards and go, hey, we just wanted to give you $100, I'm going to be happy. If you walk up and slap me for no reason, I'm not going to be happy. There's circumstances help me to feel happy. Circumstances help to take happiness away. But joy is not driven by circumstances. Joy is something that is deeper. There's an undercurrent of joy that runs in people's lives, so much so that there are people who can, can not feel happiness. They can feel sadness and experience joy simultaneously. Let me give you an example. Several years ago now, four or five years, my biological father passed away. Um, I was sitting at a restaurant with some family members. I got a call from an aunt. Um, phone came. I hadn't talked to her in several years. And so it kind of blew me away that my Aunt Sharon was calling. And so I stepped out of the restaurant to take it, um, not anticipating bad news, just anticipating, hey, we haven't talked in a long time. And they answered the phone. And she says, hey, I want you to know uh, your dad is in Scott and White and Temple and is not looking good. I'm on my way now. So I started figuring out what happened. He, uh, from, from years of substance abuse, his internal organs had just been damaged and shut down. And uh, he was walking across the street, the, the highway, actually, in Rogers, Texas, where he lived, and just fell down in the middle of the highway. Um, woke up, I guess. I don't know all the story of what happened, but they got him or he got himself to his house, passed out again, and never, never woke up. Ambulance came, took him. He was in a, one of those medically induced comas, I guess, at least hooked to the machines and And so for three or four days, we journeyed through what you do with a father who is most likely not coming back. 
and we journeyed through this, and it was my aunt and my, my dad's wife that he had just married about a year before, and that was all the family that was there. There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of issues on that side of the family. We're not real close. So just the three of us. And so we're, we're processing through what happens. And so for three days, I, I spent in the, in the hospital room at Scott and White, and I would, I would drive home in the afternoon, sleep in my bed, get in the morning, go back as we were trying to figure out what was going to happen next. And through that, that three-day journey, four-day journey, there were a lot of emotions that went through. There was a lot of sadness. There was a lot of wounds because as a young kid, my dad and I had this estranged relationship and we had begun to, to build that back in, in our adult years. But, but when that moment happened, some of those wounds that, that I had as a child kind of gaped back open. And so I began you know, processing through that and there was some sadness and there was some hurt. But at the same time, I can remember very vividly being in my car, leaving and going up I-35 to Temple and just having some uh, music on, Christian radio, and, and listening to some worship songs and having some intense, intense moments of worship and joy while I was mourning. It's hard to understand how that happens. The circumstances were not happy. Circumstances were having to make a decision. Do we turn the machines off and end the life? The circumstances were, will, will, my, will my children ever know my biological father, because my children were both young. There were some ties, some, some circumstances that were not happy, but in the midst of that, and I'll tell you, it's because of my relationship with Jesus, and I think that's where the religion study probably tagged some of this, there was this deep joy. Because joy is this undercurrent. Joy runs under the surface while happiness is circumstantial on top. There, there's a, a river in the Philippines. It's called the Kabayugan. The Kabayugan is a five-mile-long river. I put some pictures. I don't know. Hey, can you dim the lights a little bit? Maybe we can see better because it's, it's dark pictures. Check this place out. You could, it's a five-mile river that you could get in a boat and go through. It's underground, so far underground that there are some of the ceiling structures that are six stories high. There's another picture. I put one more up. Check that out. I mean, right? Let's vacation to the Philippines. Pretty cool. This underwater river, and you can go five miles through and see it. But what, what struck me is look at the surface of the water. It's like glass. What's happening above ground? The island in the Philippines. Who knows? Storm? High winds? Chaos? We don't know. You can turn the lights back up, thanks. But what, what we know is this underground river stays pretty level. It might ebb and flow as the, the ocean's tides rise. But there can be a storm on top and trees blowing apart and, and people running for cover. And underneath, deep below, this river is just placid and flows five miles long. That's a great picture of what joy is like. Chaos and the circumstances, family issues that you're dealing with, job transitions you're trying to, to, to navigate through, finances that you don't know what's going to happen. But joy can be an undercurrent in your life that says through all the chaos, there's still something that says, you know what, there's a hope at the end. Jesus is still in control, and I have joy despite the storm and despite the circumstances. Now we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Hebrews. I want you to flip over to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that talks to us about joy, but not, not a verse you would typically go to when somebody said, hey, find me some verses about joy. I need them. As you're flipping there, let me kind of give you a, a background of what the writer of Hebrews has done. In Hebrews chapter 11, the, the chapter before what we're about to read, 
the writer gives us this list of some men and women of great faith throughout the Old Testament. He talks about Abraham, and he talks about Sarah, and he talks about these, these people who have journeyed with God. They, they've, they, they did it for their life, and he lifts them up and says, look at these people, because these people that you've heard of, that your, your grandparents have told you about, that your parents have taught you about, that you're now teaching your children about, these people, these faithful servants have given us a picture of what it's like to follow God. And in Hebrews 12, we're going to look at the first two verses. He says this, Therefore, or because of what we just talked about, because you've been reminded of these great people of faith, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He says, remember these people that have shown you what it's like to follow God. They've impacted your life. And because we know how they lived, we know how they did it, we can throw off the hindrances. And he gives this picture of life as a race, but it's not a sprint. And we know it's not a sprint. It's an endurance race. It's a marathon. It's long distance. And so the writer is encouraging the people. He says, hey, in this race you're in, in this life, it is going to be difficult. Think about the people that have made it before you. Think about the guys that ran and finished the race and they did well. Think about them. Throw off the things that hinder you. You've got sin in your life that's slowing you down, that's keeping you from finishing the journey. Get rid of those things because you've got a long road in front of you. And then he says this, what you need to do, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. We're surrounded by people who lived faithfully and we've heard their stories and they've showed us how to do it but you fix your eyes on Jesus, the only one who did it perfectly. He's the author of your faith. He began it. He's the perfecter of your faith. So we fix our eyes on Jesus because we have all of this cloud of witnesses, all these people that showed us how, but Jesus is the one who did it perfectly. So follow him. And then he says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, verse two, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. Now, if we could go back to first century Middle East, no one would have talked about the cross and joy in the same sentence. If you don't know what happened at the cross, some of you this will be a little bit of, of just a reminder. But the cross was not this scene that we see in paintings where Jesus is hanging on the cross and there's some blood trickling from his hands and there's a little bit of blood trickling down from his forehead from a, thorn of, a crown of thorns. The cross was brutal. The cross was grotesque. Before you even got to the cross, Jesus was scourged, which meant the Roman soldiers took a whip that more than likely had pieces of bone in the end or glass or, or things that were sharp, and they would whip him across the back and, and drag those things back, ripping his back into shreds. They beat him up. They mocked him. They made fun of him. They stripped him naked in public in front of everybody. They put on that back that had been ripped to shreds by that scourging, they took a, a, a purple robe to signify sarcastically 
majesty, being a king, and they put that on that back that was ripped apart. I mean, you, you know what it's like trying to put your shirt on when you have a sunburn? Come on. His back is ripped apart flesh. And the blood is going to start sticking and drying on that material. And it's going to be ripped off later. They took this crown of thorns, pushed it down onto his head, and, and the thorns pierced into his skin and probably broke off when it hit the skull. And there was blood and sweat running into his eyes. And then, and then the cross comes into the picture. Then Jesus has to pick up a crossbeam and carry it up a hill. And he falls. And Simon of Cyrene comes and carries the rest of that cross. And we go, well, man, why did Jesus fall? Because he's got nothing left in him. He's losing blood. He's been beaten up. He can hardly walk. And they get up to the, this, this hill of the skull, Golgotha. And they lay Jesus down. And they take a, a, a large nail. And they place it in between the two bones in his forearm. And in between the bones and the wrist. And they hammer that nail through his hands, right through the, right through the nerve that runs right up here into your uh, funny bone, right through that. Does it to the other arm. Does it to his legs. And then they lift him up, and that cross falls into the ground. Now, most people died from a crucifixion from suffocating to death because your, the body weight is now leaned down on you because of gravity. And in order to breathe, you've got to pull your body up to get a breath, that beaten, ravaged body, you have to pull up on those nails and push up. And at some point, you just run out of energy. You can't do it anymore, and you suffocate to death, which is why the Roman soldiers came around. It didn't happen to Jesus, but they came around ready to break his leg because if you've survived too long on the cross, they're going to break your leg so you can't push up anymore. And you'll finally end it all. How in the world do we use the term joy with that? That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, we look to Jesus because there was joy set before him in enduring the cross. And the shame that came with it, he scorned because the end was joy. The cross, the circumstances of it are anything but happy. Anything but high-fiving your friends. The circumstances around the cross were grotesque. His family, his mom cried at the foot of the cross as she watched this happen to her son. His friends all scattered because they knew the ramifications. But Jesus, in the midst of that, saw joy because of this. Because Jesus knew that happiness is determined by circumstances. But joy comes from obedience. You want joy? You can't, you can't have happiness. You, you can't have happiness because April 15th comes around every year. You can't have it. You got to pay taxes. You, you are not going to have happiness all the time. You know why? Because you have some children down the hallway and they're going to rob you of it. <laughs> Steal it from you. Happiness. They're going to do things that change the circumstances of your family. And you're going to go, why did we have them? You're going to have that thought, what have we done? 
the chaos in your home, the circumstances are going to rob happiness. You can't have happiness 24 hours a day, but you can have joy. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, Galatians 5 tells us there's a thing called the fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit of God is inside you, which comes when you start following Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit is joy and peace and patience. But joy is listed there, which means if, if you're following Jesus, you actually have joy deposited into your life the way you unlock that, the way you start stepping into it, the way you start experiencing it, is stop focusing on the circumstances around you and start focusing on obedience. Because obedience is what brings joy into fruition in our life. It was Jesus who said, I know that my life ends in the cross. My life ends in this horrific moment so badly that in the garden the night before as he prayed, he said, God, if, Father, there's any other way, let's do that. Take this cup. I don't want it, but not my will, yours. If that is what your will is, then I'll be obedient through the end because I know that through obedience comes joy. But unfortunately, people, church members, Christians, buy into the idea that the world tells you that happiness is attainable and you start chasing after it when what you really need, what you really desire is joy. Being a disciple, following Jesus, <laughs> was never promised to be a happy experience. Jesus said things like this. If you want to follow me, the world is going to hate you. Not dislike you, not shake their head in disapproval. The world will hate you if you follow me. That sound like happiness? Not to me. Jesus said, you want to follow me? You know that cross we talked about? Take up your cross. Be willing to do that and come follow me. Sound happy? Not to me. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, there's a chance that your family may disown you. He said, I I'm bringing a sword into families because there'll be some people that, that are your family will never understand and they're going to disown you. They're going to not want you to be around. People who are some of the people who are the closest people in your life are going to, to excommunicate you from their life because of me. Being a disciple was never promised to be easy. Happiness was never a part of the promise, but joy was. That in the midst of the chaos, there's an undercurrent, this river of joy that flows through your life that you tap into. And no matter if it's a funeral of your father or the cross in front of you, you find joy. Now, what does that look like for us? Let me kind of give you some application. Of what do we do? Where do, where do we go from here? What we have to do to apply this truth to our life is start focusing on long-term obedience and not on our short-term happiness. We've got to start looking at long-term obedience as something desirable and good rather than our short-term happiness, but that is absolutely foreign to us. It's foreign to a culture in that we, we live. Um, we've got to stop looking at purchasing things as giving us the short-term happiness and start looking at what God has called us to do to steward what he's given us over the long term. God has given you a, a paycheck every month. And for some of us, that paycheck, as soon as it comes, it's already been predetermined where it goes. I mean, we, we've already said yes to so many short-term happiness purchases that now it's the long-term and the happiness is long gone. But what if you started changing the way you saw the world? What if you start changing the way you saw your finances? You started saying, you know what? We can say no to some short-term happiness 
Because we're going to put our finances into some long-term obedience. You know what you'll begin to find? Joy. You'll stop looking at your checkbook and having a feeling of dread come over you. You'll start finding joy in giving to what God has called you to give to. You're going to start finding joy in knowing that your future has been stewarded well because you've been faithful with the things that God gave you. But that's not the world we live in. The world we live in says, you have an iPhone 4? <laughs> You're a loser. A 4? Don't even get it. That's what the world says. Not me. I got a 2003 Trailblazer. Half the time I open the door, the alarm goes off, and I can't control it. Like I said, that's what the, what the world says. The world will look at my 2003 Chevy Trailblazer out there and go, it's time to upgrade. But I'm interested in long-term obedience with what God's called, given me, not short-term finance. One day I'll have to trade that car in. I'll be looking for the best long-term solution to being obedient to what God's called me to do. Short-term happiness. Chewy's Jalapeno Ranch. Right? Come on. Yeah. I mean, you'll go standing, you'll go to Chewy's on a Friday night and they'll go, the wait's 45 minutes. And you go, oh, okay. We'll wait it out. You know, like a, 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 like a little jar of that stuff? Like $12 or something like that? I only know because I bought it, you know, because it's <laughs> short-term happiness. We don't find joy in short-term happiness. What in the long-term obedience to take care of the temple that God has given us? The body? We got to stop making short-term happiness decisions and start thinking about long-term obedience. God said, your body's a temple. You've got it for 80 or 90 years. But you keep going for short-term happiness, you're going to have it for 40 long-term. We find joy in this long-term obedience. For some of us, there's an elephant in your family living room. There's something that's happening in the, in the world of your, of your student, your teenager, your children, maybe in your marriage, and the happiness has come in avoiding it. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to deal with it because you know the chaos that's going to come is going to rob happiness out of your life. So you decide, everybody decide, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to deal with it. We're going to look the other way. And we're just going to go about being as stupidly happy as we can be. But joy comes in the long-term obedience of being the parent that God has called you to be. In dealing with the elephant in the room that will not go away and is not going to get better and in the end will not bring any happiness. It's going to blow up in your face. And God says, you want to have joy? Long-term obedience. Delve in. Dive in. Start being the parent that I've called you to be and start working on your family. Start working on your marriage because there'll be joy in the obedient walk at the end. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is found in obedience. We saw it in Jesus when he went to the cross. Tim Keller tells a, a story. Um, I have a story. It talks about when, when you're growing up, when I was growing up, and, and your parents used to say, and now you've repeated to your kids right before a meal, don't eat, any, don't eat junk food, don't eat any snacks, dinner's coming. Your parents, when they told you that, and then when you repeated that, you didn't know the science behind it. The science behind it is this. When you eat junk food, the sugars inside that junk food convince your brain and your body that you no longer need the nutrients and the proteins that your body actually needs. And so you eat sugar and you feel satisfied. You lose the need for what your, your body really needs. And, and, and that sugar plays a trick on your mind. 
So the idea of not eating sweets before a meal or whatever is basically don't substitute things that aren't healthy for what are. Don't substitute the short-term happiness for the long-term obedience. It's a principle that we've lived since we were kids and we didn't even realize it. So here's how it plays out for you. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to say to you in this. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit has something, he's he's placed in your mind, an area of your life that you need to apply this principle to, to stop focusing on the short-term happiness and start looking at the long-term obedience. I don't know. Let me just give you some some thoughts. So if you're not there, maybe you need to process your career goals. Why are you doing what you do? What are you chasing after? Is it a short-term happiness? Or is it a long-term obedience? Are you doing what you're doing because God called you to do this for the long-term and it's a part of his plan for your life or because it was the best job that paid the most now? What's your career goals? What about your marriage? Short-term happiness? Seeing the news today? The Ashley Madison website hack? Thousands, tens of thousands of men and women who were married that have logged on to a website to try to set up an extramarital affair because they thought short-term happiness. I have no doubt, no doubt that a guy that meets another woman and has a sexual liaison with her experienced short-term happiness. No doubt. Think he experienced long-term joy? We'll watch The Notebook, though, and we'll go all weepy-eyed as a husband and a wife ended their marriage well. Long-term joy. And again, what about your budget? Maybe you need to go home tonight, pull up the bank statements online and look at what you're spending money on and go, is this short-term happiness or is this long-term obedience and stewardship? I don't know what, how the application works for you. I don't know what, what the Spirit of God is going to say to you, but here's what I do know. Many of us have bought into the lie that short-term happiness is our goal. And the scripture would tell us as we follow Jesus through this long marathon of a race called life, as we fix our eyes on him, as we focus on him who began our faith, who matured our faith, who's perfected it, he knew that joy came through obedience. I want to read you one passage of scripture. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9. I'm going to close. I'll give you some time to talk. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to close with this. I want you to hear what Peter says. Verse 8. He's talking about Jesus. He says, 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, if you want to look at it now or later. He says, though you've not seen him, you love him. You haven't seen Jesus. He hasn't showed up here, but you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. If you believe in him, and I'm adding a little bit here, the Holy Spirit is inside you. The fruit of the Spirit's there. Joy is a part of that. You believe in him, and look at this, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. You have this inexpressible, unexplainable glorious joy in you because salvation is work in you and it culminates in eternity with Jesus. And that's why we have joy despite the circumstances. Inexpressible, 
glorious. And yet, we let circumstances determine how we see life. Like the billionaire. If you had a billion dollars and you were traveling business and you got off the airport and you went and, and, and a taxi came up and, well, I guess it's, it'd be Uber now because it's 2015. You call your Uber driver and he comes and, and you want to tip him on the way out and you go to tip him $10. You get out and you leave and you realize that you didn't hand him a 10. You handed him a 50. You're a billionaire. Do you care? No. $50, that $50 mistake when you're a billionaire means nothing. It's a circumstance. But you've got inexpressible, glorious amounts of money if you're a billionaire. Why are we letting our lives be determined by all the chaos out here when we have an inexpressible amount of joy inside of us just waiting to be tapped into? It's all there. The hope of heaven. But we find it, we discover it, we live in it by being obedient. And so I'll close with this, then I'm going to pray. If you want to experience joy in your life, there are no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. It's long-term obedience. It starts today, and it doesn't end next Sunday when we talk about another emotion. It starts today, and it culminates when you see Jesus face-to-face. And all along the way, from today until that moment, as you're obedient to what God has called you to do, living the scriptures, joy begins to grow and grow and grow. And you have this river of joy, this undercurrent that the circumstances of life don't affect. I want that for you. I want that for your kids that are down the hallway. I want you to have joy. It's there. Obedience unlocks it. Let's pray. God. God, help us this week to remember that at the end of the day, we really don't want happiness. That's not even what we're after. We're after something deeper. God, help us remember that there's there's nothing that's going to keep us happy all the time. We are going to experience trials. We are going to experience tragedy. We are going to experience difficult times. We're going to experience circumstances that take happiness away. But God, help us to remember that that's not what we're after. We're after joy that's there all the time in the happy times and the sad times. And God, I pray that you would help us as we're sitting here right now to to hear from you what we need to do today to begin the long-term journey towards obedience. God, I pray that you would Work out some things in families that need to start today towards long-term obedience. That you'd work out some things and help us to, to commit to some financial changes, some career changes, some, some, some marriage enhancements to really lean in with our spouse because we're in it for the long-term and the joy that comes with it. God, don't let Satan lie to us. The happiness is what we need. God, I pray that you'd help us to walk out of here different than we walked in. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've got a few minutes. I'd love for you in your circles. If you've got a big circle, you can split into two if you need to hear each other better. Uh, somebody in your circle has the yap that has the minister's yap on it. And there's some questions. You won't get through them all. Um, but start looking through some of those. Have a little bit of discussion. If you disagree with me, talk about it. If there's something I said, a passage in the Scripture that really stood out to you, bring it up. See what the other thoughts are. And we'll dismiss you with some announcements in a moment.